The Word of God, the Holy Bible, is a treasure and a gift beyond compare. Every passage of it points to a marvelous truth that God's love for man impelled him to step out of eternity and unite with his creation in order to redeem him from sin. Jesus Christ is both the author and subject of this precious word. Join us at the Superior Word each week as we search out this wonderful gift in search of Christ Jesus. Psalm 61 says to the chief musician on, string, on a stringed instrument, a psalm of David. Hear my cry, O God, attend to my prayer. From the end of the earth, I will cry to you. When my heart is overwhelmed, lead me to the rock that is higher than I. For you have been a shelter for me, a strong tower from the enemy. I will abide in your tabernacle forever. I will trust in the shelter of your wings, Selah. For you, O God, have heard my vows. You have given me the heritage of those who fear your name. You will prolong the king's life, his years as many generations. He shall abide before God forever. Oh, prepare mercy and truth, which may preserve him. So I will sing praise to your name forever, that I may daily perform my vows. And our sermon text today, Jonah, it's chapter 1, verses 7 through 12. And this is entitled, Pick Me Up and Throw Me in the Sea. Starting with verse 7, And they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots that we may know for whose cause this trouble has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, Please tell us, for whose cause is this trouble upon us? What is your occupation, and where do you come from? What is your country, and of what people are you? So he said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Verse 10, then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, why have you done this? For the men knew that he fled from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. Then they said to him, what shall we do to you that the sea may be calm for us? For the sea was growing more tempestuous. Then he said to them, pick me up and throw me into the sea. Then the sea will become calm for you. For I know that this great tempest is because of me. The story of Jonah is working towards a good end. And yet, it is filled with all kinds of twists and turns as it heads there. Jonah, a prophet of the Lord, was unwilling to go preach to the wicked city of Nineveh, the capital of a Gentile empire. And yet, he was willing to run away from the Lord to another Gentile location. When the Gentiles are on the ship and they're in despair, they come to Jonah to see if he can help with the situation, but then they find out that he is the cause of their dire state. The Lord hurls a storm at the ship, and Jonah tells them to hurl him from the ship. Everything about the account so far seems ironic and confusing, but everything about the life we live is also seemingly ironic and confusing, isn't it? And yet the Lord is working it out for a good end. For those who are willing to accept that there is one God and that he is in control of all things, that knowledge is a comfort because we can trust that he has a plan and it is working out for a good end, something we were talking about with concerning Sergio just an hour ago. The key is to make sure that we have grasped that plan and have done what is necessary to be included in that good end. This is why we are given stories like Jonah. They show us hints of Jesus who is the key to that plan. And he is also the one to get us to that good end. If we learn nothing else in life, if we can grasp and accept this one premise, then we too shall be a part of that good end. 
Our text verse comes from Psalm 95. In his hand are the deep places of the earth. The heights of the hills are his also. The sea is his, for he made it. And his hands formed the dry land. Oh, come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. This is what God asks of us, to come and worship and bow down before him. He doesn't force us to do so, but we are often caught up in events which he has brought about in order to get us to do exactly that. The men of the ship which Jonah is on are caught up in a series of events which are beyond their control. Jonah is caught up in them too. And every detail of what really happened to these people is being used to reveal to us a greater story of God's love for the people of the world. Be they salty sailors on a ship at sea or a mighty nation which crushes other nations. In the end, he desires that we turn our hearts to him, bend our knees in humility, and proclaim with our mouths his glory. These truths are to be found in his superior word. And so let's turn to that precious word once again. And may God speak to us through his word today. And may his glorious name ever be praised. I have only two thoughts for you today. The first is, I am a Hebrew. It's verses 7 through 9. Verse 7, And they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots, that we may know for whose cause this trouble has come upon us. Vayomeru ish el re'ehu leku venapiah gorolot venedeah beshelami hara'ah hazot lanu. That's a mouthful. And they said, man unto neighbor, come and let us cast lots and we may know the evil, this to us. In verse six, which closed out last week's verses, the captain had gone to Jonah in order to get him to act. Here's what he said. So the captain came to him and said to him, what do you mean, sleeper? Arise, call on your God. Perhaps your God will consider us so that we may not perish. Whether Jonah had arisen and called on his God, or whether he simply went up and pretended to do so, knowing that his prayers would only draw the Lord to him and confound his attempt to flee, there was obviously no let up in this storm. With it furiously raging around them, and with their certainty that this was a sort of divine punishment for someone's wrongdoing, they are now determined to find out who that culprit is. In order to do so, they turn to the goral, or the lot. Though these are pagans who are calling for the lot, this practice is not unique to pagans. Many times in scripture, they are used in exactly the manner which is seen here. The first time that lots are mentioned in the Bible is in Leviticus chapter 16, which concerns the Day of Atonement rituals, a passage which points directly to the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, as does, believe it or not, this account right now. The last time they're mentioned is in Acts chapter 1, when the apostles drew lots to replace Judas, whose actions had led directly to that crucifixion. It's an ironic set of verses, but it shows God's control over all things. In total, the goral, or the lot, is seen 77 times in the Old Testament, with three of them being in Jonah, all in this one verse. The word comes from an unused root, meaning to be rough as a stone, and so it indicates a pebble. And hence, a lot, because small stones are used for lots. In turn, it figuratively then means a portion, or destiny. Despite lots seeming to draw solely on chance, the Bible paints a different picture. Though appearing random, the Lord directs all things to affect His purposes in the stream of human existence. 
The problem with us is that we attribute these things to time and to chance, but the Lord is the one who directs all things. This is seen in Proverbs chapter 16 with these words, the lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. As far as lots being used to single out a guilty party, even this is not unheard of among the people of God as is recorded in scripture. A similar account, one which attempts to determine one guilty person out of a crowd is found in 1 Samuel chapter 14. It's a little long, but I'm going to read it to you. Now Saul said, let us go down after the Philistines by night and plunder them until the morning light and let us not leave a man of them. And they said, do whatever seems good to you. And then the priest said, let us draw near to God here. So Saul asked counsel of God, shall I go down after the Philistines? Will you deliver them into the hand of Israel? But he did not answer him that day. And Saul said, come over here, all you chiefs of the people and know and see what this sin was today. For as the Lord lives, who saves Israel, though it be in Jonathan, my son, he shall surely die. But not a man among all the people answered him. Then he said to all Israel, you be on one side and my son, Jonathan, and I will be on the other side. And the people said to Saul, do what seems good to you. Therefore, Saul said to the Lord God of Israel, give a perfect lot. So Saul and Jonathan were taken, but the people escaped. And Saul said, cast lots between my son, Jonathan and me. So Jonathan was taken. Then Saul said to Jonathan, tell me what you have done. And Jonathan told him and said, I only tasted a little honey with the end of the rod that was in my hand. So now I must die. Saul answered, God do so and more also for you shall surely die, Jonathan. But the people said to Saul, shall Jonathan die who has accomplished this great deliverance in Israel? Certainly not. As the Lord lives, not one hair of his head shall fall to the ground for he has worked with God this day. So the people rescued Jonathan and he did not die. Like King Saul and the Israelites of their time, the captain and these pagans now cast the lot in order to determine guilt. Verse 7 going on, so they cast lots. Vayipalu gorolot, and they cast lots. As this is a portion of scripture which will show a positive result, and as other parts of scripture detail acceptable uses of lots, it brings up an obvious question. Are lots still acceptable today? As I said, the last time the practice of casting lots is mentioned in the Bible in Acts chapter 1. In Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit was poured out on believers. After that, lots are not used again. Though this isn't itself surprising due to the infrequent use of lots in the Old Testament, they are not ever mentioned in the epistles as an acceptable part of determining doctrinal matters. Instead, the apostles were present who were given special abilities to determine matters, and from their hands came the final books of the Bible, which are given for doctrine, correction, and the like. Our judgments now are to be based on biblical standards and then united with prayers and petitions to the Lord, not on casting lots. In other words, we are to rely on the Holy Spirit who gave us the pages of Scripture and who is present in our lives as believers. It is through this process that we are to come to our conclusions. We have what Israel of old did not have, and we are to use it accordingly. All of our decisions in life are to be in accord with the word, prayed upon for guidance, and trusted that the Lord and his good spirit will properly direct our steps. This doesn't mean that we don't act, but that our actions are first to be sanctified by prayer. Using lots is not something to be taken lightly especially after God has granted us both his completed word and his spirit. 
by testing the Lord like this, unsatisfactory results in matters that we should know by study and by prayer alone may result. In his book, Divine Guidance by B.A. Ramsbottom, we read this about John Wesley. Perhaps the person most renowned for casting lots to discern God's will was John Wesley. He even had an apparatus to which he carried around with him. But what a sorry position it brought him into. When George Whitefield notably stood in defense of the doctrines of grace and especially election, John Wesley cast lots whether to take up his pen and oppose him. The lot said yes. And so for these many years, the doctrine of the Methodist Church and its offshoots, such as the Church of God, have held to the unsound principles of Arminianism. Instead of trusting God's word and the leading of the Holy Spirit, Wesley's use of lots has brought about a great deal of confusion in the modern church. Rather than study to show himself approved, John Wesley copped out and he cast lots in order to make biblical and life decisions. He even did this to determine if he should marry a particular woman. There is a giant flaw in his method of biblical interpretation, and this giant flaw has affected countless thousands who have followed him in what is unsound theology. Verse 7 continues. If you know what I'm talking about, I've given you in the past, a uh, uh, during Bible studies, the uh, duck analogy. A duck enters into a river and it's going down to a cataclysm. If you don't know that, we'll go through it sometime. The doctrine of election and predestination. And he made his choice by lots, something that we can get right out of the Bible itself. It's very unsound. Verse 7 continues. And the lot fell on Jonah. Ve'yipol hagorau al Yonah. And fell the lot against Jonah. When the lots were thrown on the ship, the Lord directed them to Jonah. Once again, the naming of him in the account is intended to get us to think on the meaning of the name. Yonah means dove, but the root of the name Yonah is the word yana, a word which generally signifies doing wrong to someone. The lot had been cast and the significance of his name is brought forth again in the story. He is the vexer who has brought trouble on those he was with. However, as we saw, the Lord is using him, his name, and its closely associated meanings to bring to the world a story of redemption and hope. Where he has brought wrong to those around him, good will ultimately be what occurs. Verse 8, then they said to him, please tell us, for whose cause is this trouble upon us? Vayomeru elav hagida nalanu ba'asher lemi hara'ah. And they said unto him, Tell us, we pray, to us on account of which to whom this evil to us. little convoluted in a direct translation, but it comes out okay. This same type of question occurs elsewhere in the Bible, though. Why is this trouble upon us? One such example is found in the account of the calling of Gilead. Here's what it says in Judges chapter 6. Now the angel of the Lord came and sat under the terebinth tree, which was in Ophrah which belonged to Joash the Abizarite, while his son Gideon threshed wheat in the winepress in order to hide it from the Midianites. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, The Lord is with you, mighty man of valor. Gideon said to him, O oh my Lord, if the Lord is with us, why then has all of this happened to us? As for those of Israel at Gideon's time, it was for disobedience to the will of the Lord. In the same manner, Jonah's disobedience led to the calamity of the mariners. And here we are in the world today. 
facing calamity after calamity because we fail to wake up and turn to the Lord. In the end, calamity is normally self-inflicted. The final calamity, that of hell, will come about simply because of rejecting Jesus. Reconciliation is available, but it is not forced. In Psalm chapter 10, the writer wanted to know about his own suffering. He asked these, these words, Why do you stand afar off, O Lord? Why do you hide in times of trouble? The answer is always the same. The Lord is waiting for his people to wake up. Several Hebrew scholars have noted the exceptional and peculiar use of the language by the sailors here. The words translated as for whose cause are not the same as the preceding verse, even though they both are translated the same. Verse 7 describes what the sailors said to one another. Now they ask someone who is not of their own trade, and so they ask in a more elegant form than when they spoke to each other. Rather than being out of place, it displays an exceptional artistic skill is being employed in the narrative, even to the level of perfection of detail. What I'm trying to tell you is that if I say to my brother, hey, let's, well, what about this thing? I'm going to say it in one way. But if I'm going to go speak to President Trump, I'm going to say it in a different way, more polite and formal. And the nuances are found in the book of Jonah in this way. It's showing authenticity of authorship. Now, with the lot having singled out Jonah, which under many circumstances would have been sufficient for a group of anxious, desperate men, they patiently do something else. They begin a short trial. Instead of trusting in the roll of the dice, they now enter into a series of questions which are intended to definitively determine innocence or guilt. How unlike anything Jonah would have expected from these pagans. It is true that his own Hebrew tradition would have been this thorough, but he probably could not have imagined this from heathens. In Joshua chapter 7, something similar occurred among the people of Israel. Their treatment of the matter was in accord with the law. And it was carried out in a thorough and fair way. Another long passage, but I want you to read it to you. So Joshua rose early in the morning and brought Israel by their tribes, and the tribe of Judah was taken. He brought the clan of Judah, and he took the family of the Zarhites. And he brought the family of the Zarhites man by man, and Zabdi was taken. Then he brought his household man by man, and Achan, the son of Carmi, the son of Zabdi, the son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah, was taken. Now Joshua said to Achan, My son, I beg you, give glory to the Lord, the Lord God of Israel, and make confession to him, and tell me now what you have done. Do not hide it from me. And Achan answered Joshua and said, Indeed, I have sinned against the Lord God of Israel, and this is what I have done. When I saw among the spoils a beautiful Babylonian garment, 200 shekels of silver and a wedge of gold weighing 50 shekels, I coveted them and took them. And there they are, hidden in the earth under the midst of my tent, with the silver underneath it. So Joshua sent messengers, and they ran to the tent, and there it was, hidden in his tent, with the silver under it. And they took them from the midst of the tent, brought them to Joshua and to all the children of Israel, and laid them out before the Lord. Then Joshua and all Israel with him took Achan, the son of Zerah, the silver, the garment, the wedge of gold, his sons, his daughters, his oxen, his donkeys, his sheep, his tent, and all that he had, and they brought them to the valley of Achor. And Joshua said, Why have you troubled us? The Lord will trouble you this day. So all Israel stoned him with stones, and they burned them with fire after they had stoned them with stones. Like the account of Joshua and Achan, the men here went beyond the casting of lots and went into a detailed search for the reason behind the lots. They were unwilling to convict and punish someone who may be either innocent or who may have extenuating circumstances which necessitated leniency. 
The sense of what is right and the notion of the sanctity of human life is carefully highlighted, and it is intended to bring out a striking contrast between their actions and those of Jonah. Who is in the right and who is in the wrong? It is apparent that God wants us to see the events from his perspective, not a traditionally Jewish one. Evil has befallen them, and they were diligent to search out the matter and determine the source of the evil that they were experiencing. As a result, the question of who acts more righteously in this account is made completely evident. Verse 8 continues, what is your occupation? Ma melech techa, what is your work? He, a prophet of God, as we have already been told, was unknown to them concerning this most vital role among the people of God. Should such a thing be hidden? Should the position we hold, which is preeminent above all others, that of being a follower of Jesus Christ, be hidden from others until we're under interrogation? The Hebrew people were to be a light unto the nations. Of all of them, the prophets and the priests should have been at the head of this calling. But these men had no idea what Jonah did. As a kingdom of priests to the Lord, every person we meet should see something different about us, leading them to know that we are followers of Christ. For Jonah, they were now asking because he may have been engaged in a work which was dishonest, or he may have been dishonest in his work. And for him, the latter was certainly true. Knowing that this was the case would help them to make a right decision concerning his fate. Verse 8 continues, and where do you come from? Ume ayin tavo, and from where come? We already know the answer. He was a prophet of the Lord in the land of promise. They had no idea of this because he was unwilling to proclaim the very word which can save the lost soul. Being seafarers, they would stop in many locations, and the character of the people would be well known to them. Their question is to determine what company he kept. In finding this out, they may know if he was an associate of brawlers or maybe of hardworking ethical people. Verse 8 continues, what is your country? Ma Artseka. What land to you? Jonah was from the center of the nations and the land upon which the eye of the Lord was cast continuously. It is the land of promise, both to his fathers and to those who would come after him. And it was the land which he had forsaken in his flight from the Lord. The question is asked of Jonah in order to determine if he had committed some offense against the country he came from. With this response, they could then pry more deeply later if need be. Verse 8 continues, and of what people are you? And of what this people you? It seems like a repetition of the same question which was just asked. But the people to whom one belongs are not always known as the people of the land in which they reside. Within Israel, there were several distinct people groups, just as there were and are in many countries of the world. If they could determine the land and then the people group within the land, they could then determine if he was guilty of some crime against either or both. The multiple, direct, but non-accusatory questions have been asked with the intent of Jonah bringing any charge back to himself. They're broad enough in scope to give him the greatest latitude in presenting the best case possible for himself. In other words, he is being treated extremely fairly by these heathens. They are giving him a treatment which he has already refused to give to others. In this, we see shadows of the questioning of Jesus by Pontius Pilate in contrast to that of the Jews. Verse 9, so he said to them, I am a Hebrew, Vayomer alahem ivri anochi, and said to them, Hebrew, I. It is a very important proclamation. The term Hebrew is one of distinction. 
It is how foreigners spoke of the people of Israel, or when the people of Israel spoke of themselves to foreigners, or when the people are contrasted to foreigners. Despite being the official designation of the people of God who descend from Abraham, the term Hebrew is actually quite rare in the Old Testament. It was first used in Genesis 14, verse 13, to describe Avram before he was renamed Avraham. In total, it is used only 34 times. The most times are in the book of Exodus and in 1 Samuel. This is now the last time that it's going to be used in the entire Old Testament. The word is derived from the name Eber, who descends from Noah's son Shem. He is an ancestor of Abraham, and his name essentially means yonder side, or as a verb, it means to pass or to cross, and thus he who crossed over. Eber was alive at the time of the division of the languages, and he was certainly the father of the family line that maintained the original language of the earth, which we call Hebrew today. Because Eber means he who crossed over, and it is recorded that his descendants lived in Ur, which is on the opposite side of the Euphrates from Babylon, it is probable that he and several generations of his descendants moved away from Babylon. This was at some point after the time of the Tower of Babel. Abraham was known as a Hebrew, or one who crossed over the Euphrates and away from the area of Babel. It's likely that Eber was with Abraham because Abraham was born 179 years before Eber died. So this group of people with this special language, the Hebrew language, crossed over the Euphrates as directed by God's divine hand, heading west once again. This title Hebrew, coming from the name Eber, points to a celebration then of passing over the great waters of the world. They passed over the Euphrates, they passed through the Red Sea, and they passed over the Jordan and into the land of promise. The name and the title are directly connected with both a physical and a spiritual crossing over. In the case of Jonah, he had forsaken the spiritual aspect of the name, and he was holding on to the physical aspect only. If he thought that he could remain a Hebrew while running away from the Lord and passing over a great body of water, he was mistaken. In the New Testament, Paul said that being a Hebrew was a point on which he could boast if by standards of the world. And what's curious is I typed this sermon 10 weeks ago, and the verse that I'm going to read you now is one of the verses that I analyzed in today's devotional mm -hmm. 10 weeks later without having any idea that the two would correspond. But here's Philippians 3, 4 through 6. If anyone thinks he may have confidence in the flesh, I more so circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, concerning the law, a Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, concerning the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. However, Paul goes on in the same passage to say that in the end, genealogy, clan, position, or obedience to the law falls short of the greatness of Jesus Christ. What matters is not culture, race, creed, status, or wealth. In the end, what matters is the Lord and our relationship with him. Jonah wanted the title, but not the relationship. This was so much the case that his next words actually form an oxymoron, at least up until this moment. Verse 9 continues, And I fear the Lord, the God of heaven. Ve'et Yehovah Elohe Hashemayim ani And Yehovah, God of the heavens, I fear. Of these words, Jameson Fawcett Brown state, his practice belied his profession, his profession aggravated his guilt. However, 
The guilt of his own conscience has now redirected him. It is as if the storm raging around them acted as a preacher, carrying the Lord's message for the wayward prophet. He first acknowledged himself as a Hebrew, and then as if awoken from a slumber, he says now that he fears Jehovah. But even more, he says that he is Jehovah Elohe Hashemayim, Jehovah, the God of the heavens. The local deities which the sailors encountered everywhere that they went were all subordinated to the God Jonah now claims to serve. In fact, the very heavens which raged around the sailors was ruled by the God he feared. Jonah's mind is now fully awakened to the reality which is around him, and he is willing to stand on what he had learned from the time of his childhood on. There is one God, and the God that he serves is that one God. The storm itself had one effect. The casting of lots had another. If the storm was a sermon, the specially directed casting of the lots was the call to repentance. He had been targeted by the dice, a call to his heart was made, and now he willingly responds to that call. From this point on, there will be a change in the conduct of Jonah, which will carry him through a great ordeal and onto the execution of his prophetic commission. Here, right at this point, he moves from being a picture of disobedient Israel to a picture of obedient Christ. And later in the Bible, he's going to go back to being a picture, I'm sorry, in the book of Jonah, he's going to go back to being a picture of Israel. Verse 9 continues, who made the sea and the dry land? Asher asa et hayam ve'et hayabashah that made the sea and the dry land. Not only is this the God of the heavens, but it is he who made the sea and the dry land. The implication is that he is the creator of all things. There was once no sea and no dry ground, and then these things existed. A world with no sea or no dry ground is no world at all. But through the wisdom, power, and skill of Jehovah, these things were made, and thus he is the creator the force behind, and the sustainer of them. It is an all-encompassing and exclusive claim. Jonah is now fully awake from his slumber, and he has thoroughly thought through the significance of what the name Jehovah means. Where are you, O God? Help us on this raging sea. Quiet the waves and bring back the peace. The ocean is far too broad, the waves too mighty. Calm the storm, O Lord." cause the waves to cease. We put our trust in you. Surely you will preserve us alive. Cease the tempest and bring us to a time of rest. This please do. To that distant shore we shall arrive. To be with you there is our hope-filled quest. Guide us safely to that marvelous shore, and may the journey there be one of blissful peace. Calm the storms of life. May they arise no more. Until we are at last with you, may these storms of life cease. Our second thought today is hurl me in the sea. It's verses 10 through 12. Verse 10, then the men were exceedingly afraid. And feared the men, afraid, whoppingly. With great danger comes a desire to heed the word, doesn't it? For those at ease in the world, there's no need of heeding the word. But when the danger of the tribulation period falls on them, many will be more than willing to accept what the Lord has spoken. In the case of the sailors, their eyes have seen the evidences of the truth of Jonah's claims. There's been a violent raging storm which came upon them as if purposely directed. And then, to see if there was guilt by anyone on board, they cast the lots. These were again purposefully directed to only one soul. And then the words of that targeted person only confirm what they knew must be true. As it says in Isaiah chapter 28, the understanding of this message will bring sheer terror. 
That's Isaiah 28, 19. Jonah has preached a message to the sailors as clearly as the storm is preached to him. The Lord is God and he is sovereign. Nothing he does can be thwarted, and so man is to fear him. And so fear they do. The verse tells us that they were exceedingly afraid. Because they traveled to Joppa, they must have been aware of the claims made by the Hebrew people. They may have dismissed them in the past, but now they realize that this claim is true. The Creator is upset with Jonah, and they are participating in the results of his anger. Verse 10 continues, and said to him, Why have you done this? Ve'omeru elav mazot asita. And said unto him, What this have you done? This is a rhetorical, horror-filled question, which is not looking for an answer. Rather, it is as if they think he's gone over the deep end. Are you completely out of your mind? They can easily put two and two together. Let's see. The God you serve has created all things. You're attempting to flee from the creator of all things. And you have brought us along on your little escapade. How can anything be more ridiculous? And today, reading the story of Jonah, we can pat the sailors on the back for figuring this out. We may also point our fingers at Jonah and giggle out loud. However, we are just as guilty as Jonah each time we try to hide from the Lord whatever sin that we engage in. If he is God, and he is, then whatever we do is fully known to him. As noted by Moses to the people of Israel, when you sin against the Lord, be sure your sin will find you out. Verse 10 continues, For the men knew that he had fled from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. For knew the men that from the face Jehovah he fled because he had told them. The peculiar thing about these words is that it does not tell when he told them this. Most scholars assume that it was in verse 9 and that this is just a fuller explanation than what is recorded there. But that seems unlikely for a couple of reasons. First, it then makes the narrative awkward. Why wait one verse to restate what had just been said? Secondly, it doesn't sync with what we saw at the end of the last sermon from verse 6. There the captain said, Arise, call on your God. It may be that the God will shine on us so that we do not perish. They had made the assumption that the God that he was fleeing from was just a God who could then petition the God. They thought nothing more of it until they received the full revelation of who Jonah's God was from Jonah himself. This appears to be the case. In ancient times, the gods of the people were assumed to be localized to only specific areas. If a person fled from their God, it simply meant that they were fleeing to another God. This was customary, and it wasn't something that concerned the people. When sailors would travel from port to port, they might even take up the worship of whatever God was the God of that land, assuming it had control of them while in that land. This is something one sees many, many times in the Bible, as people followed the gods of whatever land they were in or of the people groups of other lands. Now these sailors had a completely different perspective of the God they were already somewhat aware of. It is for this reason that it is probable that they knew he was fleeing from Jehovah even from the moment that he got on the ship. While taking his fare and talking about the journey, they may have asked him where he was heading. And he may have said something like, somewhere away from Jehovah, the God of Israel, just like in a kind of passing statement. And they're like, oh, okay. Verse 11, then they said to him, what shall we do to you that the sea may be calm for us? Elav ma lak hayam me alanu. 
and said unto, What shall we do to you, and may be calm the sea for us? What is astonishing is that they have come to fear the Lord enough in this short time to know that they cannot arbitrarily take action. The natural assumption is normally, get rid of the instigator, and the problem will disappear with him. This is what the Jews of Jesus' time assumed, and they were wrong. For the sailors, they are wise enough to think the matter through. By now understanding the greatness of the Lord, they see that such an expediency may not actually resolve the situation. They knew Jonah had the answers, and so they ask, what should we do? When a family member is sick, we ask our doctor, what should we do? When our car is broken, we ask the mechanic, what should we do? When our life is spinning out of control, even when we've never acknowledged God one single time in our whole life, the very first thing we do is cry out, oh God, what should I do? We don't call Ghostbusters, we call God. When John the Baptist was preaching repentance before the coming wrath, the people of Israel asked the same thing. Here's what it says. Then he said to the multitudes that came out to be baptized by him, brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore, bear fruits worthy of repentance and do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I say to you that God is able to raise up children from Abraham from these stones. And even now the axe is laid to the roots of the trees. Therefore, every tree which does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So the people asked him, saying, What shall we do then? He answered and said to them, He who has two tunics, let him give to him who has none. And he who has food, let him do likewise. Then tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than what is appointed for you. Likewise, the soldiers asked him, saying, And what shall we do? So he said to them, do not intimidate anyone or accuse falsely and be content with your wages. The problem with what shall we do is that when we ask it, we're already in a pickle. The child is sick. The car is broken. The wrath is coming. What we need to do before our life is unmanageable is to take Solomon's advice. He says in Ecclesiastes, remember your creator in the days of your youth. Get to know God before the days of evil come. How few of us, and I mean this sincerely, I'm not talking about the church, I'm talking about the world. How many of us are willing to actually do this? For the sailors with Jonah, we are told that the storm was only growing worse. Their question is one which is especially direct. What shall we do to you? They know that whatever they do, it is to involve Jonah specifically. They desire a calm sea, but they desire it out of a newfound fear of the Lord. Therefore, they asked the only person who knows what that fully entails, and there was a sense of urgency to the matter. Verse 11 continues, for the sea was growing more tempestuous. Ki hayam holek besoer, for the sea worked and was whirling. It's a Hebrew idiom which indicates it's something which is growing more and more. It was as if the sea itself was alive and it was writhing out from under its covers, coming at them by the command of the voice of the master who directed it. Each new swell that lifted them was a warning that they should not delay in taking action, lest they would all be lost. Again, the account here takes us to Mark chapter 4 and the dire situation which the disciples felt while Jesus lay sleeping. They woke him and begged with the pitiful words, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? There was a time to awaken the Lord who was sure to have a remedy to their plight. And there was a time to petition the Lord for the sailors with Jonah to also remedy their plight. The word translated as tempestuous is the verb form of the word tempest from verse 4. 
As a verb, it is used only seven times, twice in Jonah, more than any other book. It is from a root which means to rush upon. It is used in Zechariah chapter 7 to indicate the Lord's rage against Israel, where he scatters them among the nations. Here's what it says in Zechariah 7. Yes, they made their hearts like flint, refusing to hear the law and the words which the Lord of hosts had sent by his spirit through the former prophets. Thus great wrath came from the Lord of hosts. Therefore it happened that just as he proclaimed, and they would not hear, so they called out, and I would not listen, says the Lord of hosts. But I scattered them with a whirlwind, that word right there, among all the nations which they had not known. Thus the land became desolate after them, so that no one passed through or returned, for they made the pleasant land desolate. If you're paying attention, you're starting to get a picture of what this is finally coming to. The fear of the Lord by the sailors, though, was going in two directions at once. First, it was in fear of what he was doing, and secondly, it was in fear of what he may do if what they did was wrong. They needed an answer, and so they awaited the words of the prophet himself. Verse 12, and he said to them, pick me up and throw me into the sea. Vayomer alahem sauni vehatiluni el hayam, and said to them, take me up and hurl me forth into the sea. Again, the word tool or hurl is used to show us the contrast between what has been and what is now expected. In verse 4, the Lord hurled a great wind onto the sea. After this, in verse 5, the sailors attempted to lighten the ship by hurling the cargo over the sides. Now, Jonah again uses the word to indicate that in order to stop what the Lord had hurled at them because of what he had chosen to do, they needed to, in turn, hurl him into the sea and to the fate of the Lord. The word is used in a striking manner for us to consider. Because of the disobedience of Judah, the Lord promised to hurl them out of the land which they dwelt in, using the same word which is now seen in Jonah. Here's what it says in Jeremiah 16. Therefore, I will cast that word, you, out of this land into a land that you do not know, neither you nor your fathers, and there you shall serve other gods day and night, where I will not show you favor. As a prophet of the Lord, it is with the same resigned attitude which Jeremiah the prophet announced to the people of Judah and which Jonah now relays his own sentence. It is to be taken as a divine prophecy and with its fulfillment will come the hope-filled promise of deliverance for those who are so close to perishing. Verse 12 continues, Then the sea will become calm for you. Ve'yishtok hayam me'alachem. And be calm the sea for you. The word for calm is shatak. It's found only four times in the Bible. Two are found here in Jonah, verse 111 and verse 112. This is the last time that it will be seen. The other two times, it's used in Psalm 107, verse 30, and Proverbs 26, verse 20. In the psalm, it indicates the calm after a storm. And in Proverbs, it metaphorically speaks of peace after strife. In this case, it carries both meanings. There will be actual calm upon the seas after the terrifying storm, and there will also be peace after the strife between the Lord and Jonah. Concerning Jonah, his actions are given as a type of the coming Messiah. He has offered to die in order to allay the terrifying flood of God's wrath. Should he not be cast into the waters, the flood of God's wrath will engulf them. And should Jesus not have been cast into the ocean of chaos and death, God's wrath would likewise remain on us. This is why John records this in his gospel. And one of them, Caiaphas, being high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, 
nor do you consider that it is expedient for us that one man should die for the people and not that the whole nation should perish. Now, he did not say this on his own authority, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation and not for the nation only, but also that he would gather together in one the children of God who were scattered abroad. Jonah spoke the word of the Lord to the men on the ship, forming the type and picture of Messiah to come. In fulfillment of that, Caiaphas spoke under the spirit of prophecy concerning what would occur concerning Christ Jesus. Verse 12 finishes with these words, For I know that this great tempest is because of me. Ki yodea ani besheli hasa'ar hagadol alachem. For know I that because of me the tempest, the whopping, this on you. Jonah understands the consequences of his actions against the Lord, and thus he has arrived at the acceptance of the penalty he deserves because of them. In this realization, he has grown to be more outraged at his own sin than fearful of the expected suffering which the punishment for that sin demands. The punishment for his actions must be carried out, or there will be no turning of the Lord from his anger. Again, this is like the account of Achan at the time of Joshua. Until the violator was removed, there would be no relief from the Lord's anger. Jonah knew that just as Achan brought trouble to Israel, he had brought about trouble for innocent men and that his life was now forfeit. This is the message of the Bible. Man has transgressed the law of God and punishment is due for that transgression. But like Jonah, who is willing to give himself up for the men on the ship, Jesus was willing to give himself up for the people of the world. There is an immense difference between the two as well, though. Jonah was guilty and was to be punished for his guilt. Jesus was without guilt, but accepted the punishment for those who are guilty. The lesson here is that God cannot simply pass over sin. Instead, it must, it must, it must be judged. But God has also fashioned a means for the punishment to be executed in a substitute. Capital S on that word there. In the verses so far, we have seen the Lord's anger at disobedience. This is the sin of Adam. We have seen the sailors' attempts to save themselves. This is works-based salvation. We have seen Israel's failure to meet the law both in their works and in turn sharing the light with the Gentiles. And we have seen God's determined purpose in the lots. This is the destruction of sin through the fulfillment of the law. A law which now requires a substitute to be sacrificed in order for salvation to be realized. In this act, shatak, or peace after the strife, is the promised and expected result. It is the gospel. Thank God for Jesus Christ who is both capable and willing to do this for us. It is evident that God loves the people of the world enough to demonstrate that love in the most marvelous of ways. Let us refine our doctrine on salvation to the point where we can clearly and precisely convey it to others. It is the message which desperately needs to be shared in this world in which we live. And I would like to tell you about that gospel message very clearly. The Bible says that God created man. If you think it through, there's no other option. We didn't evolve from muck, which came from a big bang. God created us and God gave us free will. He created us in innocence. We didn't have experiential knowledge. And until we sinned, we didn't know what sin meant and what the consequences meant. On the day that you eat of that fruit, you shall die, meant nothing to him. It does not negate the fact that he told them not to do it. And they rebelled against God and they did that thing. And sin entered the world. And all the way through humanity, we have inherited the sin of our first father. 
The Bible says that the wages of sin is death. We die because we have sin in us. The Bible gives us two types of death. The first is spiritual death. We're born with that. We're already spiritually dead, okay? We have no spiritual connection with our Heavenly Father. The second is physical death. If we don't get the first spiritual death corrected before the second physical death, we will be separated from our Heavenly Father for all eternity. This is what the Bible teaches. It says, but, that glorious three-letter word, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. He is that substitute with that capital S that voluntarily threw himself into the sea of chaos, the sea that we live in to this day, and then he threw himself further into the sea of death so that we could live through him. And he had no sin of his own, proving it by the resurrection. It was impossible for death to hold him. We're going to see that in a couple more sermons. But I will tell you this, you have to voluntarily call on Jesus. We're not regenerated in order to believe and then believe. God simply makes the call and we have to respond to it. He says, if you call in the name of the Lord Jesus, you will be saved. This is what God asks of you, is to call out and say, I am a sinner and I cannot save myself. And while driving around this week and coming here this morning, I've had this thought in my mind all week long. What if Jesus, it says he's the lamb slain from the foundation of the world, Revelation 13, 8, I think. What if Jesus didn't die for our sins? Think of it. There would be no point in creating anything. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit were already in eternal fellowship with one another. They didn't need to do anything. They created out of an act of love, saying, I want to have fellowship with my creation, the people that I'm going to create, right? But what if Jesus didn't follow through with that and did not die? Every single human that ever existed would be cast into hell. And that means that Jesus would be all alone, the only human, all by himself. What kind of fellowship is that? It's obvious that Jesus Christ loves us enough to do what he did. And that goes right back to God creating in the first place. That's how great God's love is, that he spoke and everything came into existence. That is marvelous love there. He knew before he spoke that we would rebel against him, but he wanted to fellowship with us, and so he sent Jesus Christ. Amazing. Call on Jesus and be reconciled to God the Father, please. I've got a closing verse for you from Psalm 107. I told you about that word shatak. It's in the Proverbs, and it's also in 107. Here we go. They mount up to the heavens. This is guys on a ship at sea, okay? They mount up to the heavens. They go down again to the depths. Their soul melts because of trouble. They reel to and fro and stagger like drunken men and are at their wit's end. Then they cry out to the Lord in their trouble, and he brings them out of their distresses. He calms the storm so that its waves are still. Then they are glad because they are quiet. Shatak. So he guides them to their desired haven. Just what we're reading right in the book of Jonah, right there in the Psalms. Amazing stuff. Next week is Jonah 1, 13 through 17. Surely from what happens, Jonah will show signs of aging. It's entitled, The Sea Ceased from Its Raging. That'll be your fourth Jonah sermon. And the Lord has you exactly where he wants you. He has a good plan and a purpose for you. Even if a deep ocean rages against you and is ready to swallow you up, he can send delivery to you in the most remarkable of ways. And so follow him and trust him, and he will do marvelous things for you and through you. Okay? Another short poem. We're only doing three or verse, four verses at a time, so we've got short little poems. Well, wait till we get to Leviticus. The poems will take four hours to get through. <laughs> this is called Pick Me Up and Throw Me in the Sea. And they said to one another in a somewhat heated fuss, Come, let us cast lots that we may know, for whose cause this trouble has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. To Jonah it did go. 
Then they said to him, please tell us, for whose cause is this trouble upon us? So asked the crew, what is your occupation and where do you come from? What is your country and of what people are you? So he said to them, I am a Hebrew and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. If you want to know more, stay tuned for news at 11. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and to him said, why have you done this? Words forbidding and bold. For the men knew that he fled from the presence of the Lord because them he had told. Then they said to him, asking about their situation so grim, what shall we do to you that the sea may be calm for us? For the sea was growing more tempestuous. And he said to them in words stern but true, pick me up and throw me into the sea. Then the sea will be calm for you. For I know that this great tempest is because of me. Lord, how amazing it is for us to see how another was willing to die for us. There, there upon the cross of Calvary hangs the sinless Son of God, our Lord Jesus. And for us, he was cast into death's terrible sea. His life was taken so that we could live. And yet, over death, he gained the victory. And to us, that victory he does now freely give. Praises to you, O God, for these things you have done, for the marvelous works accomplished for us. Our highest praises for the gift of your Son, our precious, glorious Savior, our Lord Jesus. Hallelujah and amen. Lord God, thank you for these wonderful words which are leading us somewhere. We're going somewhere in the book of Jonah and how exciting it is to learn a little bit more, a little bit more until we get to that final resolution of what this book is trying to tell us. And on the way, we're going to see wonderful things, marvelous things that point to directly to your son, our Lord and our Savior, Jesus. How marvelous it is to see these things and to fellowship in your word with other people and to experience these things and to learn things that maybe we didn't know before, ever increasing our knowledge of you and ever being molded and conformed to your image because of it. Thank you for that wondrous glory. Thank you that we can do that even while in this earth, still in these sin-stained bodies. Thank you. And Lord, we have a couple of special prayers today. One is for Will Groban who is struggling, I'm sure, with his own condition right now. And I would pray that you would be with him and help him to understand all things and to know that sometimes things like this happen for a greater purpose. And if there's a a needler in the church that caused him to want to leave, that, that you have something better for him ahead. And to not lose heart and to not lose faith and to just stand on the the truth of your word and to be a light to others while he's enjoying his time away from the ministry. And of course, Lord, we pray desperately for Sergio and Rhoda that you will be with them, put their your hand upon them and to guide them through the next few days of their life and into eternity. You're going to be with them all the way, but help them to feel your presence in a way that is real and which is absolute so that they have confidence and that they're not quaking and shaking and anxious. Help us to be strong in this and to pray for them and to remember them and no matter what happens, to rejoice that God is with them and that he has selected the right path for them. But we would pray that that path would lead to the door of the superior word and to a home in Sarasota. Thine will be done, God. That's just my little hope. And Lord, we thank you for everything you've done for us. We commit the Lord's table to you, knowing that we are undeserving of taking it, but that we have, by grace, been given that opportunity. Hail the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen.